Okay, good evening, uh, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to this uh, public lecture, which is organized uh, by the Department of International Development and the Department of Statistics at the LSE. Uh, my name is Wendy Willems, and I'm assistant professor in the Department of uh, Media and Communications here at the LSE. Um, so this event, entitled Fraud at Polls, Can Journalists and Statist Statisticians Check the Mozambican Experience?, and we will have three speakers this evening who will discuss a unique collaborative project between journalists and statisticians in Mozambique, which aim to investigate and test the official outcome of five uh, presidential elections. And I'm on honored to introduce the speakers for this evening's lecture to you now. So on my right-hand side is Dr. Joe Hanlon, who is currently a visiting fellow in the Department of International Development at the LSE. He holds a, a PhD in physics, interestingly enough, and has worked um, in Mozambique for nearly 40 years, uh, both as a journalist for the BBC and for the, the Guardian, but also as an academic. And in his capacity as a journalist, he covered all the multi-party elections in Mozambique since 94, and since 99, also uh, in collaboration with an increasingly large team of Mozambican journalists. Um, for the 2014 national election, he arranged a team of 150 journalists, one in each uh, district, and published a very influential uh, daily uh, newsletter. Uh, Joe has also published a number of books, uh, with the latest uh, one being uh, A Decade of Mozambique, Politics, Economics and Society, which was published by Brill in 2014. And he was also the co-author of uh, a book entitled Zimbabwe Takes Back Its Land, which was published in 2012. Uh, so Joe will speak for about uh, 20 minutes and uh, will then be followed by our second speaker, who is Johan Albach, who is currently a PhD student in the Department of Government at the LSE, and uh, he has undertaken the statistical analysis of uh, the, the kind of data that um, Joe has been collecting, and Johan will speak for around 20, 25 minutes. Um, and then um, his talk is followed by a response of around 10 minutes from uh, Uni Kuha, who is an associate professor of statistics uh, and research methodology in the LSE Department of Statistics. And we should then hopefully have around 30, 40 minutes left uh, for questions from the audience. Um, before I invite uh, Joe to deliver his lecture, just a few uh, logistical announcements. So any Twitter users in the audience, feel free to use the hashtag for tonight, which is LSE Mozambique. Um, please do put your phones on silent so that you don't um, disturb the lecture. And also to confirm that this evening's lecture is being recorded and hopefully will be uh, made available as a podcast in the next few days, subject to no technical difficulties. So thank you very much, uh, and over to Joe. I mean, being a, a journalist and having been a science writer once, I, I kind of like to try to put the numbers and the journalism together, and so that's partly what we're going to try to do tonight. <clears throat> but I want to start with these two slides, which come from a 1941 film called Citizen Kane. And in the film... Kane is the publisher of the newspaper and he's also standing to be governor of the state and they're doing, they're still counting the ballots and so they have two headlines prepared, Kane elected or fraud at polls. Now, what we know is that in elections, this is an old, old problem, the loser always says it was fraud, I was cheated. The trouble is that that's not a joke in Mozambique. Um, the loser has a militia, 
This militia is currently shooting at traffic on the main north-south road. Three people have been killed in the last week, 20 injured. Um, he's now threatened to invade provincial capitals in the next two weeks. Um, so whether he lost the election or not actually matters. Uh, it's no longer a joke. And so part of the question is whether the media can be a check on whether there's fraud in elections, how well we can do this. And what I want to do in my part of the talk is to look a little bit at how we've set up, I think, an unusual media coverage that has become a, a check on the elections where we've mixed local journalists with investigative journalism, and our team did find fraud and misconduct. Um, but there are only 150 of us, and Mozambique is a big country, so we wanted to decide whether what we saw was typical or not. We have data down to polling station level for the first four presidential elections, and Johan will look at what we can do with that data, what we can analyze to see whether what the 150 of us saw was more general or not. Now, I want to, for those of you who don't know much about Mozambique, let me do a very quick summary of Mozambique. Um, came to independence in 1975. Frelimo was the liberation movement, became the government, one-party state. Civil War from 1980 to 1992, which was partly at least a Cold War proxy war. It was supported by apartheid South Africa and the apartheid era. Um, the 1992 peace accord was that there should be multi-party elections and that the guerrilla force, Renamo, would be the opposition party. Um, and what, we see, what you see from this, this is basically the, the votes in the, elect, in the five elections. Um, the first election had a very high turnout, and I was there, and it really was a turnout. People were voting for the end of the war. Um, the turnout has dropped in the, over, until 2004 and then has increased in more recent years. Um, the guerrilla leader, Alfonso Jacama, remains head of Renamo. He was the presidential candidate in all five elections, and he's lost every time. Frelimo has won all five elections, but there's a two-term limit in Mozambique, so we've had three presidents so far. But Frelimo winning each time means that we do have a predominant party state. And what that also means is that Frelimo controls the state apparatus. On the other hand, the Mozambican press is extremely free. On the other hand, it's also very poor. And Mozambique is a huge country. It means that the journalists can't afford, and the, the media can't afford to send journalists out into the provinces very often. And so it tends to be very based in the capital, Maputo. Now, I'm a journalist, and so the question that I started to ask is, Instead of sending journalists out to the countryside, could we use local journalists? Could we build a team of local correspondents? And so we started in 2003 with 35 correspondents for the 2004 election, which is the sixth election we've done. We had 150 correspondents. These are all local people. Most of them are working for community radio, community magazines. Some are teachers, some are working for NGOs. And technology is changing. In 2004, I had one correspondent, 
that it took him a day to get to the nearest telephone to phone back to tell us what was happening. By 2014, all of our correspondents had mobile phone coverage. So it's getting better. Um, what I want to do with my part of the talk is to look a little bit at the electoral system and look at our team and then to look a little bit at what we found. Um, Mozambique, you have to register anew for each presidential election. You register and vote in the same place, usually at a school. The system of registration is that there's just a register book. You go up, you show your identity card, you sign up. When a book is full, and that's 700 or 1,000 depending on which election, that book becomes a polling station. And a polling station is usually one of the classrooms in the school. Um, on election day, it's a paper ballot. There are three votes. People vote for president, national parliament, and provincial parliament. The count is done in the polling station. And the result sheet is posted on the classroom door after the count is finished. Media is present, observers are present, party poll watchers are present. So it's relatively open. Um, the posting the results on the door means that you can do parallel counts, sample counts. Um, the, we've done, the, the year before presidential elections, you have municipal elections, which doesn't cover the whole country. We've covered, so we've covered three presidential, three municipal elections. Um, we cover the registration, we cover the campaign, we cover the voting, we cover the counting. We do a daily newsletter, um, and more often when we need to. So on voting day, for instance, we come out three times during the day with reports from our correspondents, did polls open on time, what was the turnout? Middle of the afternoon, we say, are there still queues, which is a way of measuring what the turnout looks like. Um, the, we're on email mostly, but we also use Facebook, which is important in Mozambique. Um, we're based at something called the Public Integrity Center, which is a local NGO. Uh, for 2014, we had two editors in Maputo, the capital. We had 150 correspondents, which covered almost every district. In contact with them, mostly by phone, but also email. Um, one of the things that becomes important is we can do surveys with text messages, with SMSs. So on the opening of registration, for instance, all of our correspondents send us an SMS to say whether or not the registration started properly. One of the things that happened in 2013 was the messages came back and said there are problems with the printers. We can't, they can't print voters' cards. So we actually published before the National Election Commission realized that there was problems with the registration. Our coverage was better than the Election Commission's. Um, and that becomes really important. Um, our main audience is the media. We, when we're doing a daily newsletter, it's in the middle of the afternoon so that it gets picked up by the next morning's papers. We get very widely published because we have better coverage than anybody else. And we're trusted by now. And that becomes really important. Also important for the parties, for the election observers um, and election officials. Um, key point here is that we're actually allowed to do it. We wouldn't be allowed to do this in Zimbabwe. I mean, the press really is free in Mozambique. In six elections, we've only had one serious incident with one of our correspondents. One of our correspondents in a remote, distant town in Gaza 
actually saw the district administrator beating up the opposition spokesman with a gang of thugs. He reported it. The district administrator called him in and said, I'm going to do the same thing to you if you don't get out of town in five hours. Um, we actually sent somebody to the governor and said, you can't do that. And he thought it was, it was resolved. Um, we have a few minor problems. Um, the, in some provinces, the government-run um, local community radio stations say people can't write for us. We use teachers sometimes, and sometimes the school will say, no, you can't write for them. But mostly we don't have a problem at all. Um, the thing that is really important for all of this is all of our correspondents are trained. We do a couple days training for everybody. Um, and the thing that we stress is it has to be factual. We don't want rumors. The key question is, did you see it? And if you didn't see it, did you talk to somebody who did? And we don't want my cousin overheard somebody on the bus who said, but we're not doing that. Um, and that, that, by forcing our correspondents to actually nail down what happened, it means we've actually been very accurate. Um, we do encourage the parties to come to us and complain, um, but then we check. So if the party goes to our correspondent and says, one of our agents has been arrested, they go to the police and they say, do you have this person detained? Um, there's an incident at the polling station, they go to the polling station and say, did something happen here? And even though the version of the story may be totally different, at least we can confirm the arrest, at least we can confirm, confirm that there was an incident. Um, and if we can't confirm it, at least we cite the source, so we don't ever publish anything anonymously. And of course now, with smartphones, we can do photographs. And that makes a big difference, especially where violence is involved. We can get pictures. Um, this is a, some of the issues of our, of our newsletter. The um, top left one is about registration problems. The other one is about violence. But I want to talk about the cars. Um, under Mozambican electoral law, it is illegal to use state resources in the campaign. So Frelimo is not supposed to use state cars, which, of course, they always do. So what we said to our correspondents is, I don't want you to simply send us that they're using state cars. I want the registration numbers of the state cars. And so we started publishing lists of registration numbers of state cars that were used. Um, so the response of Frelimo was to cover up the registration plates. So we'd start publishing photos of covered up registration plates. Now, what's interesting about this is that it's a small kind of thing, but it makes a difference. And these are small towns. Everybody knows everybody. We don't keep our correspondence secret. We couldn't. And one of our correspondents told me that he was in a, he was talking to one of his friends who was a Frelimo organizer. And he said, you know, you guys are actually causing us trouble. I got a phone call from Maputo that said, stop using state cars so much. Now, it's a small thing, but we've created a climate in which people feel they are being watched. And I think that's really important in the electoral process. Um, and we do try to confirm and publicize things where there's been violence and so on and publish. And that's the importance in a sense of local sources. These are local correspondents who speak the local language, who know people they can go and check. 
You know, it's not just going to the police station. The correspondent will know somebody in the police station, will ask, are you really holding this guy? So it becomes informal in that sense. Um, and we become, we become trusted because we're accurate. Um, one of the things that has been important for us has been where we can expose fraud and misconduct. And um, one of the interesting things is invalidation of ballot papers. Now, what, if you look at those ballot papers, you'll notice there's an X for the opposition candidate on the top, and then there's an extra ink mark on there. And what happens is count is going on late at night. It's the middle of the night. There's a little lamp on the table. There's no electricity. Half of the people are already asleep. It's very easy for someone to put extra ink marks on the ballot papers to invalidate them. Now, this first came up in 2004. Um, Renamo said that they had seen this. We asked our correspondents in 2009 if they would start to look for this, and this is 2009. Now, one of the things you see on the other things is that when, when an election is going on, they tick off on the blackboard what is happening. And you'll notice the top of the, of the thing there is that there's Devisa Mango had won most of the votes. Nulosh on the bottom is the number of invalid votes. 23 invalid. When the results sheet went up, it was 123 invalid. So we knew immediately that suddenly 100 of, of Samango's votes had been invalidated. Um, we actually forced a change in the law. And one of the changes in the law, a very little one, was that all ink had to be removed before the voting counts. And it's interesting that the number of invalid votes fell from 4% in 2009 to 3.2% in 2014. And that's exactly the, the sort of level that I think was the, the falsely invalidated votes. So I think we made a difference. Um, the other problem, of course, is ballot box stuffing. Um, ballot box stuffing occurs everywhere. And we've seen it in Mozambique, and there are allegations that it happens here in Britain. But in Mozambique, there's a bigger problem, which is, again, this you're finally doing your final result sheet at 2 o'clock in the morning. Often the Renamo people are asleep. Um, everybody's tired. It is very easy to change the result sheet so that 100% of the people have voted. And surprisingly, no one was ill and no one died, and they all voted, and they all voted for Frilimo. And it's changing result sheets that has actually been the form of ballot box stuffing that we saw. And so we started chasing this up. And this became an form of investigative journalism. We have used that to push um, the National Election Commission. To, we constantly are publishing this data. And this is something that we use, us in Maputo and our correspondents out there, and the parallel count and various other things that are going on, we can pull together and make some sorts of estimates of how much this is happening. And it's interesting that in 2009, we forced the National Election Commission to actually reconsider this. And in Tet province, where, as you'll see from Johan, it's worst, in 2009, we discovered that they had actually taken 100,000 votes and rejected them and that the turnout, which had been announced at provincial level, was 65%. Suddenly it was 55% by the time the National Election Commission was done. And this is basically ballot box stuffing. 
So we have a very direct influence on the election, and it is this whole sense of keeping this stuff clean. Um, Johann's going to look more at the statistics of this. I mean, you have to remember that this is us. All right, I can think numbers, but we're journalists. We're a bunch of journalists, really. And there's only 150 of us, and so what we've done together is that Johan is number crunching this a little bit and doing some forensic um, analysis. Now, um, finally, I just want to end up with a few key points, and then I'll quit. I mean, for me, the key points are um, that we have built a, a, a credible media election monitoring system by using local correspondence, and that we are, in some level, a check on misconduct by the parties, misconduct by election officials. So we're helping to keep it clean, at least. Um, and to me, four things are key in this. One is checking, verification, and credibility of what we do. We're not a Facebook rumor mill, and people realize that, and so that becomes really important. The second thing is local journalists with local knowledge speaking local language. The third is using these correspondents for, as a basis for investigative journalism. We can use text messages to do very quick checks with people. If we think something has gone on, for instance, we, we had rumors of violence in Gaza at one point, we could send a text message out to all our correspondents in Gaza saying, has there been violence? Is there a problem? Um, and we use it for demonstrating fraud, we, and we circumvent secrecy in the election commission. But finally, we can use this to really hammer home some of the key issues, ballot box stuffing, invalidation, and we are able, to, and we're, we're, we're treated credibly, and we're treated credibly by the election commission, by the opposition, and by FEMA. They may not like what we're doing, but they treat it credibly. And I think that means that the media has a very real role in monitoring this sort of election. The question, of course, is how common is what we, what we see. Um, and I will hand over to Johan, and we'll try to say something about some numbers. Thank you very much, uh, Joe. Everyone's hearing me. Yeah, great. So uh, I'll present this study that I carried out to uh, look at the data that uh, Joe has provided for the four presidential elections from 94 to 2009. And uh, the ambition in this study was to look at if the patterns that journalists and election observers, as well as opposition parties, have lifted up, if they are also reflected in the statistical data. And uh, so this study started off with a systematic analysis of all the election observer reports and uh, to get some form of approximate hypothesis of the level of, of potential irregularities, uh, uh, the type of irregularities, as well as uh, the subnational location of these irregularities. And then, then uh, we did a review of all the existing studies in this field called election forensics and uh, try to identify the tools and uh, indicators that was 
that were suitable for the data we had, and then we applied these indicators, and then we compared the findings to the election observer reports. Uh, in this presentation, I'll say a couple of words of this field of election forensics, then I'll show a couple of these indicators, and then I'll summarize the, the results. I'm not sure which one I'm pressing. There we go. So the field of election forensics is actually quite a recent field. Uh, this picture represents a, a Russian activist that is trying to suggest that we should try, trust statistics rather than official election results. And basically this is what this field of election forensics tries to, to achieve, is, is to use statistical tools to evaluate the integrity of elections. And uh, typically these studies work with ballot station data or ballot box data, meaning that there's almost no other data uh, to control for, for example. And uh, Typically, they start with certain assumptions of what they think free and fair elections should look like, and then you start to look for deviations from these assumptions. And if these deviations form a pattern that uh, point in a certain direction, you, you kind of can either verify or contradict other allegations of, of these irregularities. Uh, it's important to remember that none of these tools or indicators that either I'm presenting or or other carry out, they don't claim to have evidence of fraud as such, but rather only indicators that may either strengthen or weaken other claims of, of irregularities. So in this study, we've uh, looked especially at vote inflation, uh, polling center deviations, and uh, the invalidation of, of votes. And I'll, I'll present a couple of uh, descriptive uh, graphs, and then I'll present a, a so-called finite mixture model, and then we'll look a little bit at invalidation of votes, and I have this stick to kind of mm -hmm. uh, show a couple of... So what you're looking at here is, is the sort of starting point of many of these studies, and they look at the turnout distribution. These are our basic uh, kernel density plots of, of, of the distribution. So you see turnout percentage down here and, and the density of observations. And, and in the basic assumption of, of free and fair elections, what you would find in, in most elections in, in consolidated democracies is a uh, normal distribution of the turnout. Basically, a, a, a bell-shaped form. And this typically, uh, we see this typical pattern in, in the first two elections with then a long tail to the side. This would suggest that certain, a small number of ballot stations have a lot less votes than we would otherwise expect. This would be uh, maybe logistical problems, run out of ballot uh, papers, ballot stations open too late, uh, these kind of issues that were also lifted up in, in the observer reports. In the 2004 election, 2009, you see that the turnout starts to go down on average, and at the same time, there comes this skew towards the right. And in 2009, you see that this skew kind of starts to lift up here on, on this side. By the way, uh, the red and the blue lines here represent either urban or rural ballot stations. I should have mentioned that. So uh, this skew is mainly concerning rural ballot stations. Now, overall, these patterns don't look that deviant from, from uh, what you otherwise would expect on a national level. But when we started looking at provincial level, these kind of patterns start to... Uh, 
deviate a lot more uh, radically. So, so in the two first elections, they look very similar to, to the national level. Uh, while especially in Tet province, which is one of the provinces that have been lifted up as, as the main problematic area, you see this uh, in rural stations, you see this second peak emerging towards 100% turnout, uh, which in 2009 becomes uh, quite uh, apparent. Now, this would suggest that there's a numerous number of, of, of ballot stations that have far beyond what we would expect from a national uh, distribution. Now, a, a similar approach taken in, in this field is to look at, 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 at plots that uh, combine both turnout and the winner's vote share. Now, these are so-called three-dimensional scatter plots, and here you have the turnout percentage, and here you have the winner's vote share. And, and uh, in these, the redder the color, the more uh, the density of, of observations or the overlay. Uh, typically, in, in, in the assumptions based on, 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 on studies from uh, numerous countries suggest that uh, what you typically see in free and fair elections is, is that there's, no, there's a, no dependence between turnout and, and winner's vote share. So they would cluster in a, one area around mean turnout. In some countries, you would have two clusters, uh, like in Canada, where you have a polarized electorate. Uh, this is similar patterns you see in the UK, by the way. But what is important is that these two clusters don't differ in mean turnout level. Whereas signs of, of, of vote inflation typically start to form a, a, a scatter plot that is, is pushed and smeared towards the upper corner. And this, this occurs when you have unusually high number of turnout and unusually high number of, of winner's vote share starting to increase. And, and up here you sometimes get yet another peak, and that would be ballot stations where there's 100% turnout and 100% winner's vote share, which uh, often is considered uh, near impossible in, in most uh, systems. Now, when this sort of descriptive plot is, is, is uh, applied to the Mozambican elections, and here I've again divided between urban and rural stations. You see in the 94 and 99 elections a, 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 a plot that is somewhat similar to the Canadian case, where you have two clusters that are essentially on the same mean turnout level, both in urban and rural cases. They don't differ in mean turnout. Uh, in the latter elections, 2004 and 2009, the urban ballot stations start to slowly transform into a, a single cluster, almost like the one you saw for Switzerland, uh, meaning that uh, Renamo's uh, voter support is quickly disappearing. Uh, in 2004 and 2009, in the rural cases, however, the, the cluster is not only a single one, but it starts to smear along this kind. And this is what is suggested of, of, of ballot inflation, whereas uh, a, a more normal one would be the one you see above. Another way to visualize the same effect is to plot the cumulative percentages of votes as a function of turnout. And, and, and what that means is that these sigmoids that you see here in, 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 in free and fair elections, we expect that when the voters... Uh, cumulative vote share has reached a maximum, it would level out at, at, at a certain turnout level. Uh, that what you see in almost 
all elections except uh, considerably fraudulent ones. And this same effect you see in, in, in 94 and 99 in both urban and rural ones, in 2004 and 2009 in, in urban ones. However, in rural ones, you start to see the effect of, of ballot inflation, whereas this line starts to be pushed up and never, never actually level out. Now, these all are, are descriptive plots, as I said. So the technique that has been applied to try to estimate the effect of ballot inflation uh, it's developed by a, a group of researchers, uh, Peter Klimek and colleagues, and then later by a, a man called Walter Mebane. And, and, and the idea was to try to model what the vote count for the winner at ballot box level should look like if these assumptions of, of uh, free and fair elections would be fulfilled. And, and, and this... this uh, graph of a, 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 a histogram suggests that what they picked is that they picked the values on the left side of the first peak where they thought that that's where the clean uh, votes would be. And, and, and if we model what the whole result should look like based on those values, then we have a, a kind of null model. And then we add, take from, from the opposition and take from the non-voters, shift increasing number of votes to the winner, uh, based on, on, on the distance between these two sides and, and, and create another distribution of, of those votes. And then we can even create a third one where we add like enormous amounts. And using a, a finite mixture model, we can uh, calculate the conditional probability of, of, of for each ballot station which of these distributions they should belong to. And, and these maps here uh, present averages on post-district level for uh, these probabilities of, of, of having uh, vote inflation. And as you see again, the same story repeated, that in 94 and 99, you have a relatively low levels. Sorry, the redder the color here, the higher the probabilities. So uh, in early elections, you see very little uh, low levels of, of these probabilities and, and, and spread to quite a few areas. In 2004, there's a quite an increase in both uh, the level of these probabilities and as well as the areas they cover. Whereas in 2009, uh, it's fewer areas, but it's concentrated in very specific places. Now, I've used the word vote inflation consistently because uh, basically what this means is that we find in a lot of places a lot more votes than we would otherwise expect given a certain number of assumptions. And these extra votes may come for a number of reasons. They might be extremely efficient local campaigning that just didn't happen anywhere else. There may be voter coercion, or there may be direct ballot box stuffing. And we can't use statistical methods as such to verify exactly which is which. But certain, certain issues suggest that these are not entirely naturally caused. And one is that these areas are exactly the ones that uh, observer reports highlighted as the main problematic ones, where you have procedural errors that, that don't follow the, the rules that elsewhere follow, or, or also other types of claims of, of, of direct ballot box fraud. Another uh, thing is that in each of these elections, as mentioned, was that uh, the, the rate of invalidated votes is about 4 to 5 percent. Now, there is no reason, if these would be totally naturally caused, 
uh, votes, then there's no reason that these should have less invalidated votes than elsewhere. And, and when we calculated the, the mean invalidated votes for a, a sample of, of, of very high probability cases, they have invalidated votes very less than 50% of the whole sample. And the higher the probability, the lower it goes. This would suggest that these votes have been entered into the ballot box in some other way than the ones that have caused the same rate of, of invalidated votes. But uh, uh, overall, this, 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 this follows very much what election observers would suggest. Am I nearing the time? Ten minutes, not ten minutes. You still have ten minutes. Oh, that's great. Uh, another indicator that we looked at uh, was that a lot of these polling centers which was a school, for example, they have multiple ballot stations within them, which in this case was a classroom. And uh, as long as the allocation of voters to each of these ballot stations is not uh, dependent on their vote characteristics, then we wouldn't expect massive differences in the, the vote count between these. Uh, there may be deviations, but they shouldn't be extremely large. Uh, on the other hand, if there are deviations, we would not expect these to either favor or harm either party in, in case of, of free and fair elections. They should fall relatively randomly. And when we did this test and looked uh, for these uh, deviations within polling centers, we found that in 1994, uh, these deviant ballot stations uh, were either sometimes favoring Renamo and sometimes favoring Frelimo. There was... Uh, no, no statistically significant difference in this. In 1999, we couldn't do this due to the lack of, of ballot station level data, which uh, the election officials haven't uh, released. But in 2004 and 2009, there was a, a, a clear uh, bias in favor of Frelimo. So deviant polling centers, on average, had about 10 to 15 percent higher vote, vote uh, shares for Frelimo, which uh, in itself uh, suggests that at that time the allocation either is not random anymore or that there is some other systematic uh, feature that is driving these results. A final slide looks at, at, at the intentional invalidation of votes. And, and these are scatter plots of, of uh, these are districts, each dot here, observation. And, and, and on the x-axis you have the the vote share for the winner, and, and on the y-axis you have the inv uh, invalidation rate. That means the percentage of votes that have been invalidated uh, of all the votes cast. Now, in a free and fair election, the fairness aspect suggests that each vote should have the same probability of being included in the count, right? And that means also that each vote should have the same probability of being invalidated if the election is fair. Uh, taken further, that it should be independent of your vote, vote uh, intention as such. Uh, meaning that we shouldn't find any correlation between the invalidation of votes and support for either party. Uh, of course, there are other things that may affect invalidation of vote. And, and one thing we tested for and found a very positive association was the rate of illiteracy. So the higher the percentage of, of people that neither could read or write, the higher the percentage of invalidated votes. 
Now, once we had controlled for that, we found no association between invalidation of votes and, and the share, the vote, vote share for the winner in the first two elections. They are, there's no association whatsoever. In the two latter ones, you see an increase in negative correlation. That means that, which is statistically significant even after controlling for other factors. And, and that means that in areas that are Frelimo strongholds, election officials are a lot less likely to invalidate votes. Whereas in areas that are either equally matched or Renamo strongholds, uh, election officials will be a lot more likely to invalidate votes. Uh, one thing, it can be driven by the fact that I, I was just drawing your attention to that in, in cases of, of extremely high vote shares for the winner, we find an unusually low number of invalidated votes, but it can also be uh, pushed by the fact that in these more equally matched regions, there are more votes likely going to the opposition and therefore also stronger incentives for potential uh, intentional invalidation of them. We did further analysis looking at the same idea of looking at the deviations within polling centers. And, and I don't have any graph for that, but basically, uh, especially in 2004 and 2009, there are patterns suggesting that deviations in invalidate, invalidated votes suggest that they are more likely to affect Renamo votes than Frelimo votes, which if all assumptions of fairness of election uh, would hold, that would be an impossibility in itself. The final slide to summarize the results is that when I put all back to, to the election observer reports, they were very much in, in line with these as well as, as, as the broader journalistic uh, follow-ups of these elections, meaning that in the early elections, we saw some but very few irregularities in 94 and 99, uh, whereas in 2004 and 2009, patterns that are consistent with both in, vote inflation and, and intentionally invalidated votes were a lot more apparent. These were specifically in these areas that were also highlighted by election observers, that is the province of Tet and the province of Gaza and to a lesser extent, the province of Niassa. Finally, and, and, and another thing I wanted to say here also is that most of them were concentrated in rural, rural areas as opposed to urban areas, which, which maybe came out also in these graphs that I showed earlier. Finally, I just wanted to, again, emphasize the final point that these are only indicators. There's no, not, nothing in these methods by themselves have, have such certainty that they could be uh, presented as, 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 as some form of evidence of either fraud or not uh, and, and, and should be treated as such. Uh, a potential avenue for some form of further research could be to try to, to pinpoint exactly the ones, uh, ballot stations that have the more apparent irregularities and connect them with directly anecdotal evidence from journalists and try to verify whether these uh, find uh, further support or not. Thank you. Thank you very much, Johan. And I'd like to invite Uni to give his response. Thank you, Wendy. Um, good afternoon, everyone. Good evening, I guess. Um, I would like to first 
thank all, both Johan and Joe for uh, what I thought was a very interesting talk. Um, my role here is a brief one, just to offer some brief comments to sort of start the discussion, um, which will then continue with the question and answer session. And I do that as, as a statistician, because that's what I am, not as an expert on, on Mozambique, definitely, or even much of an expert on elections, at least outside the UK. Um, so what I will talk about is how this seems to me as, as an example of statistical analysis at work um, and how such analysis can work together with subject matter experts, in this case both experts, the journalists on the ground in Mozambique and, and, and election experts in a broad sense. Um, I'll begin with a bit of a digression, so please bear with me. This does have a point. I'll do this in honor of Joe's original calling as a physicist. <laughs> Um, when thinking about this talk, I was thinking about the um, Higgs boson, which, uh, as you know, now know is, a, is a, an elementary particle in particle physics. And as you know, in, a couple of years ago, they, the, it was announced that the Higgs boson has been found, announced by the researchers who uh, were working on the Large Hadron Collider at CERN in Switzerland. So they had the announcement at the press conference. Um, what they didn't do there was to hold up the particle or show you a photo of it or something like that, because as you know, it's too small and breaks up too quickly for that to be possible. What they had done instead, and what they were reporting was, was the results of statistical analysis of, of very, very large amounts of data that come from the detectors of the collider. Um, and what they had done was to look at the signs of uh, what should come out when it breaks up according to the theory. If it existed, what should come out? Now, and with a pretty gross simplification, you could say that the evidence they had could be summarized as, as bumps in a graph. What I mean by that is certain statistical analysis where certain places you'd see more, you should see more stuff if the particle existed than if it didn't. Um, and that's what they did. So that's kind of the particle physicist version of the smoking gun, which led them to declare that it exists. Okay, now what's this got to do with elections? Um, on a certain level, on a certain general level, quite a lot, in fact. Um, in the sense of general conceptual methodological ideas, the kind of detection that work that's involved in election forensics is, has various similar elements to detecting particles, or for that matter, detecting various other things. First of all, in all of those different cases, you need enough data of the right kind. Um, so elections, for example, if, if all we had was too aggregated, for example, if an election was ever, only ever declared on a sort of, you, you all, all you learned was the final results in terms of the vote shares of who got what and who won um, and nothing else, or something that was aggregated too much, there would not be no way of doing this kind of statistical analysis uh, and detecting any possible irregularities through that. However, if you do have data on a sufficiently disaggregated level, like in this case uh, is available, then it's a whole different business. Then, then um, all sorts of things are possible in principle. Second thing is that that data should also be sufficiently systematic, representative, comprehensive. Now, this is in order to avoid um, overreacting, jumping to conclusions based on individual cases which look, are, look or perhaps genuinely are irregular. The memorable anecdote, so to speak. I mean, 
we have to resist that because we humans are all very, very susceptible for doing that, jumping to those conclusions from, from um, limited evidence. Um, and certainly people, uh, and perhaps we're more so prone to that in cases that we care about most particularly, like important things like elections. And certainly people who care the most, like uh, people on the ground who, who have interest in elections, are certainly not immune to that. So what we need to do is to sort of avoid focusing on the particular and the peculiar. And that's where the statistical analysis comes, comes in. That's kind of its job, is to look at all of the data across in a sort of systematic and similar way, uh, so that if there then are any evidence of possible irregularities, then that analysis brings them into clearer relief when they're looked at against the background of all of the data. And, and look, by looking at it like that, we can sort of see whether they indeed do look like irregularities, even after looking at them. So that's all important. Next, and most important of all, uh, we need to know what to look for. Uh, so these days there's quite a lot of talk about statistics and data and analysis. It's increasingly understood and appreciated and it's quite important in today's world. And there's all this talk about big data and all that. Um, but in that talk there's a fair amount of confusion as well often. Uh, sort of various naive ideas of what, what one may do with such data and how. And a common naive idea is to somehow think that um, once we do have enough data, the more the better, uh, then all we need to really do is to somehow just look at it and let it speak for itself and tell us what's going on. Now, that's not how it works. I mean, data does not speak for itself. What it does instead is answer questions that you put to the data. In other words, we know we have to have a focus. We have to know what to look for and where. We, we have to know what aspects of the data to analyze and how, and we have to know, have a sense of what we should be seeing under different assumptions of what might be going on. So, and once we do have that, then we are in business again. These expectations can only come from substantive subject, understanding of what we're looking at, the, the substance of, of uh, whatever the data are about. Um, in other words, thinking about the kinds of things we teach at this school to our students, um, all those classical things that we have always taught and will always teach about good research design, formulating clear hypotheses, then looking at the evidence about those hypotheses, all of that is still completely and totally relevant even in this age of big data. Um, indeed, it's more valid and relevant than it has ever been before. Okay, back to electoral forensics in this particular respect. Uh, those theoretical expectations... Well, there are two kinds, and I'll talk about the second kind in a second minute. Uh, the first kind is, comes from the sort of structural ideas of what election results look like. Um, understanding of what we would expect to see if there was a clean election and what we should expect to see if there was a, a fraud of some kind or another of particular kinds. And we've seen that in Johan's part of the talk. And an interesting part of that in this context is that, um, as we've seen, is that the best way in this case to look at that evidence uh, is very often not to look at the directs themselves, i.e. how many votes each party got and who won and all that. Instead, it's, we sort of take a sort of sideways look at other things around the votes themselves and how they go together with the vote. So we've, we've heard about the turnout, how the invalidated votes, how the votes kind of go together in 
locations that are near to each other and all that sort of thing. Um, so it's, it's there that the evidence lurks, so to speak. And it's there because, broadly speaking, the idea here is that if somebody tries to falsify an election where data is available at sufficiently detailed level, it's really quite difficult to do that in a way that everything lines up in looking like a, a regular clean election looks like. There's something that will go slightly out of sync and then sticks out in the analysis and, and those are the kinds of things we might detect in the analysis. Um, so, as long as we know where to look again. Right. So those are the important things. Having the right kind of data, knowing what the question is and where the answer should show up. Once you've got all that, then the analysis itself, the methods of analysis for addressing those individual questions tend to follow and, and may well indeed be fairly straightforward to figure out. Uh, and indeed, the types of analysis that are involved may them, at that point may not necessarily be very complicated at all. I mean, we've seen examples of pretty much straight up simple descriptive statistics today, which do don't completely do the job for the right kind of question. We've also seen examples of the other kind, more sophisticated methods, which are sometimes needed, like uh, the finite mixture model that you saw, which produced the maps, um, and so on. But um, that's a sort of follow-up issue is what the exact methods are once you've got the rest of it sorted out. Now, finally, uh, one more word about the substantive um, information, substantive knowledge. I've talked about one kind, which is sort of the structural ideas of what election results tend to look like. But that didn't really refer to Mozambique in any particular way. Um, that's the other kind of crucial substantive in information here, the, the, the sort of information from the journalists on the ground. Here, that is also crucial for what I might call the sort of sanity check of the results. Um, this is to compare the suggestions from the statistical analysis to what is expected on the ground, so to speak. Um, and we had examples of that. There were these clear-cut expectations, understanding sense from, from there that they first, for example, level of irregularity might have gone up over time across these elections. Similarly, there were a clear sense that it might have been going on more in southern parts of the country than others, um, and things like that. Now, that sort of information is not necessarily something you bring into the analysis at the beginning. And indeed, it's better if you don't. In other words, the analysis of the data is done in sort of isolation from those sorts of expectations in detail. However, once the analysis is done, and the two are then compared, um, it adds a great deal of, of confidence and, and sort of um, support for both sides if they end up agreeing with each other, which at a relatively broad level they, they did here. So, all in all, um, I much enjoyed uh, the talk, both the parts that I didn't know much about beforehand and the parts I knew more about, and in particular enjoyed how they came together to reinforce each other. So, on that, I would very much like to thank both speakers again and uh, look forward to a good question and answer session. Thank you. Thank you very much indeed to all uh, three speakers for uh, sharing their insights in relation to this uh, most fascinating project in, in Mozambique. I would like to invite um, the audience to respond and to ask any questions. Um, and let's take a few uh, in a row. So let's start there, Bassani. And there, yeah. Okay, yes. 
good evening, Bonoit. Uh, my name is Bert Smith. I work for World Vision UK, based in UK, but I lived in Beira from 2009 to 2013. First of all, my mind has been blown both by your journalistic work as by your statistic work. I really think I'll never look at elections in the same way. I'm very impressed with what both of you have done. I do have a question about the statistic work. Um, uh, it seems to me you have measured the deviation from what a clean election would look like. And I realize it's indicator, it's not evidence, but you've been trying to measure this, this kind of deviation. What I would do, I'm a bit of a naughty boy, uh, what I would do, it seems to me that this kind of information would allow you to correct for that. I mean, uh, you have the official numbers from the 2009-2013 elections. For Lima got that many votes, Ranama with that many votes. You have all of this analysis at a district level uh, of what could be the deviation. What I would do is, is all right, what would it, the result have looked like if the elections were clean. I, I, I feel that this would allow you to, to do that and to measure the effect, all right, if it, these are the official results, it looks like this. Uh, if it were clean, it would have looked like this. Would Renamo have won or would the distance have been smaller? What effect of what, what appears to be fraud, what effect did it re this really have on the results of the elections? Thank you very much. Um, there's a question here. Um, thank you very much. I was very interested in your presentation. One thing I wanted to ask, I'm not a statistician, so I don't know if you covered this as you were um, explaining, but why is it that you see your evidence as an indicator um, rather than just calling it what it appears to be, to be, which is fraud? What is it? I mean, you mentioned the fact that you... you, you you don't go direct, but like you, you look indirectly at various um, indicators. Um, why, why can't you trust those to, to say that actually this is fraud? Thank you. And there's a question here. Thank you very much. My name is Marcus Weimer. Um, I'm an LSE alumni and long-term observer of Mozambique. Um, <clears throat> I've got really got two questions. One of them is regarding the, the data. Now, I know that you have observed the last elections as well, and I was wondering why you didn't include that. Um, and maybe you can tell us a little bit about the rate of invalidation of 2014. Um, the elections weren't that close in 2014, so I'm wondering whether that really would have made a difference. And that really brings me to the second point. Um, the, the talk was started or uh, begun by Dr. Hanlon uh, when he said that whether Renamo won the elections really matters. It actually does matter because they're armed and they're waging an insurgency. But actually, did it really matter? Because I don't think even Renamo is claiming to have won the elections. Now, they are claiming to have won in some provinces, which they clearly did. What they really want is a change in the constitution so that they can govern those provinces. It's not really a claim to have won the elections. Thanks very much. Okay, thank you. And I think there was one question here at the front. Yeah, yeah so I think my, my point is similar to some of the other points that have been made about, um, you know, did it really make a difference? Would they have actually won? You know, so maybe you can comment on that. Mm -hmm. And maybe just 
uh, one more question because uh, recently of course in Uganda there was also an election there um, for the presidency and it was like I think eight candidates it was so of course Yuri Museveni I think won it it was 62% of the overall vote uh, that he won but you see in certain constituencies or certain voting areas you, if you look at the results it's quite clear there was 100% turnout in some of them you know, 100% votes go to President Museveni, none to the other. So, you know, it's quite clear there's been fraud in, in, certain, in some of these parts, right? Because, um, you know, no uh, issues of sport, sport ballots in certain cases. No, this is 100%. Everyone went to vote. Surely there's a suspicion there. Thank you very much. I would like to invite the panel to respond to these questions for now. Uh, Joe, would you like to start? Yeah, okay. Um... <clears throat> Let's start with the simple one. I'm going to leave the statistics for you on. Um, we don't have data for 2014. We probably won't get data for 2014 for another three or four years. So we couldn't do that. Um, what we, you mentioned the invalid. What we do know is that nationally, the number of invalid votes dropped significantly. So we actually think that invalidation may have been less. For ballot box stuffing, we won't know till we get the data. Um, Johan will partly answer this, but the why indicator, why can't you say fraud? I'll give you an example of legitimate high turnout. Um, two examples of legitimate high turnout. One is that you do get villages of Frelimo, Antigua's combatants, people who were in the guerrilla war. They all vote. They really do all vote. Um, and I'll give another example, was for one of the elections, they did an extra campaign to register people who were going to turn 18 in time to vote. And you ended up then with polling stations, classrooms, which were mostly 18-year-olds. They really turned out in large numbers. And I went and saw, you would, you would go to a polling center, you'd go to a school, and you'd see one queue. And that was all the young people who had registered late who were, who were voting. And so there are other reasons why you might get high turnout. And so you can't simply say that high turnout is fraud. On the other hand, we do know it's fraudulent. We do know, and that's why the, um, the scatter plot is interesting. I actually want to go back to one of Johan's plots. Oops, wrong direction. There we go. This one is absolutely fascinating to me, and I want to, this is the answer of did it make a difference. Um, this caught me totally by surprise. Um, if you look at the, the dark areas or the areas where we think might be fraudulent, what's interesting about those, they are so the most remote, the most rural, the lowest density. If you look on the right-hand side on the seacoast going up, toward the north, those are the two densest provinces, the two northern provinces, not the most northern area, but come down from that. Sorry, I don't have a mic, but if you, if you look at that section right there, there we go. Um, that's Nampula province, it's the densest province, that's Zambezi, it's the next one. Now, that's, I don't know, third of the vote, third of the national vote. What's interesting is how clean that shows up. Now, 
what you're seeing then, and this is, a, this is a journalist, not a statistician's comment, is we're seeing the most fraud in the areas that have the least votes. So that suggests to me that the results must be reasonably accurate. Now if you then go further back in these slides, and you look at the differences, you look at 2004, 2009, there's a huge difference between Chikama and the Frelimo candidate. And there just aren't enough votes there, in my opinion. Not, you can't make up those differences from fraud. But even if we apply the sort of level of fraud that we saw 2004, 2009, 2014, you'd have to ballot box stuff half a million votes. I don't think we're going to find that for 2014. So my answer is I don't think um, Jakama won any of these elections. Um, he does, by the way, claim he won all five. Um, he really does. And what is interesting is I think he believes it. And one of the reasons he believes it and why fraud becomes really important is we've just seen that there is fraud in these elections. That makes it very easy for his supporters, for his aides to go to him and say, you really won. And it raises a question about why Shalimo should choose to be fraudulent in the elections when it didn't need to, and created a climate in which it is easy for the opposition candidate to say he was cheated and to believe it. I really do think he believes it. So it kind of becomes a question of, of why, why mess when you're going to win anyway? You know, Frelimo would have won clean elections, I think. And I think it therefore really does create a, a climate of, you know, and it's, it's important we're watching. We've probably kept down the fraud levels. But, um, so in answer to the Barra question in, in the beginning, I mean, if the elections were clean, if the elections were clean, Philemo would have won. This is my journalist's assumption. Um, Johan would never, <laughs> would never look at that. <laughs> but, you know, if I start to play with these numbers, and especially the, looking at the big provinces, the big provinces seem to be really clean, and seen, most of the problems seem to be in the most rural places where there aren't that many votes. Um, Okay. Uh, anything else? Now let me pass over to. Yeah. Is this the one? I don't know. Mm -hmm. this? Uh, maybe I can leave the counterfactual to Yoni. <laughs> I just wanted to comment on the, the Y indicators and that evidence. Uh, firstly, it is a relatively young field, and uh, these are not the only indicators. Like I said, I, 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 I picked the ones that were suitable to the data we had and the assumptions we could reasonably make. Uh, some of these indicators have earlier been thought to be a lot more credible, but later then more and more suspicions have been laid at, at whether they actually can explain fraud. And, and, and you have, uh, you call it false, false positives where you 
where you find fraud where there is none and false negatives where where you don't find any fraud even there are fraud all these methods have that risk and and, and, and therefore evidence as such like all, all these deviations in themselves are possible even though they might not be plausible and, and uh, in, 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 in no court of law would they be sufficient uh, and that's why I, I, I believe they should always be uh, only secondary to other type of evidence and either used to, to contrast or, or, or contradict uh, or strengthen these type of claims rather than alone claim to, to show anything. Uh, like I said, with, with, with regards to, to the counterfactual, maybe maybe only has a <laughs> straightforward answer. Well, in fact, first say, uh, follow up on that on the uh, language question. Why not say straight up that we think this is wrong? And, and I'm not speaking as someone who didn't do the analysis, but sort of uh, kind of knowing how, how we use it. So part of this is, is that you were hearing academic language where we say things in a very sort of cautious way, even when there's no, no real need. So this is in effect that you might hear us say, the evidence is consistent with the claim that it's Wednesday today. <laughs> It's excuse to say things like that, but straight up, it's Wednesday. Mm -hmm. Second one is that, more importantly, that it's sort of, you do want to be cautious when, when there are still alternative explanations. It's not that clear cut, and when it's, a, when it's a big thing, you know, accusing someone straight up of, of, of something as big as, as electoral fraud is, you know, be cautious, and especially perhaps when you are someone doing it, no, you don't know the local context, you've, you've done a statistical analysis sitting in, in your office here, I mean, you, you see the numbers, then you don't want to sort of be too bold about what you say. With these numbers, looking at them again, not having done the analysis, if it was something that mattered less, a smaller thing, the same sort of evidence, I think we might be relevant, what might in fact, quite boldly say, yes, there's a smoking gun here, but in this kind of context, there's natural tendency to be a bit careful about what, what we say and not let just leave the evidence about the evidence. That so there's that number communication aspect of this. In terms of the counterfactual, the, um, what would have the results been without any um, fraud? Uh, that's more difficult, you know, even on the analysis level. What I mean by this is that it's one thing to ask the yes-no question. Is there evidence of any irregularity? And another thing to translate that into specific numbers. How many votes exactly were lost or gained? Uh, the second kind can be done. It wasn't the point of this analysis, but it certainly will require further not necessarily more data, but kind of assumptions about exactly how it went. So it, it's simply a, a bigger question which wasn't attempted today. Thank you very much. Um, I'd like to invite a second round of questions. Um, yeah, the front here and then at the back, there are two questions.
Hi, everyone. Thank you. Um, my name's Keith McDonald. I was formerly a member of staff here at LSE. Um, Joe and I worked together on putting a lot of this data information available online. Um, if it hasn't yet been mentioned, certainly like to plug the microsite that's available for Mozambique elections as part of the International Development uh, Department website here. Um, I suppose when we're thinking about the importance of what it means to having open access data for transparency, for accountability, it was interesting, Joe, what you said about the fact that there's a climate created because of fraud when it may not actually be necessary. Mm. How optimistic do you think we can be um, for the future, maybe, of elections in Africa and elsewhere if we are able to set a precedent of making access to data more freely available? Thank you. And there's a question at the back. Two questions, I think. Um, you spoke a bit about technology and what that has enabled your team of 150 local journalists to do. Um, I worked in the 2014 South African elections for a small political party, and we came across a lot of um, this kind of activity as well. We found that out because people would tweet pictures, they'd call in, they'd email, they'd text. Um, so my question is, your journalists are all voters. Um, could all voters be journalists, and would you start to crowdsource this, crowdsource this information, or how would that affect the statistics? Um, and just secondly, it would be interesting to know how the Electoral Commission responds to this, because certainly in South Africa, they're potentially as corrupt as the parties. <laughs> Thank you for your question. And there's a question there. Hi. Hi. Um, <clears throat> uh, my question is, uh, you, you present quite a nuanced but sort of convincing case that there is some level of fraud going on, and you also admit that maybe it didn't really make an effect to the overall result. So I was wondering if you have any questions about the ethics of publish, publishing research such as this, which may have an effect on the country uh, as it stands at the moment. Thank you. Great question. And there's a question there. Hello. Yeah, uh, my question is for Dr. Joseph Allen. Uh, I think it's a generic question, but it's also some curious coming here. It's about the, the team you mentioned of the 150-plus journalists. Uh, you say they are local people, they speak local language, they are known in the community. And what we're trying to bring from all these uh, coverages, uh, you mentioned you are looking for the facts. I was wondering, I'm thinking about politics in Mozambique. Sometimes it can be very polarized. So I'm, I'm, I'm asking, I'm wondering. For instance, let's take a city like Beira. Reporting that there was a violence, mm. it's, it's one thing. But uh, maybe the most interesting question is to say who started the violence. And uh, naming and shaming or blaming or saying who started the violence, this can challenge the integrity of uh, any professional. So I just want to hear from your experience uh, if it, if it, do you find uh, this, this polarization of politics in Mozambique challenging your team sometimes? I'm, I'm thinking someone who's reporting from 
uh, Renam stronghold area, something, let's say, against Renam, or someone from Frelim stronghold uh, reporting something against Frelim. Have you experienced something like this? What's your experience? Thank you. Thank you very much. And if I could um, just add one more question to this and uh, take the advantage uh, of being a chair. Um, I'm based in the Department of Media and Communications, so there's a lot of enthusiasm, of course, about the role of social media, also in monitoring of elections, uh, particularly in the wake of the Arab Spring, uh, a lot of donor funding going into uh, monitoring elections. And... um, Joe, you mentioned about the role of Facebook, that you used it to a certain extent in your project. So I was wondering if you could say a little bit more about that and what difference do you think it has made, given that, of course, it has a very low penetration rate in most um, African countries. So if I could then ask the panel to respond and perhaps we'll go in the same order. Okay. Um, I want to group a couple of these questions because the, the polarization, the crowdsourcing comes together because what we found where this is where there has been various attempts at crowdsourcing what you end up getting is party activists putting stuff on Facebook or there was an attempt in the 2014 election to do some sort of crowdsourcing and it was basically huge amounts of stuff from party activists either promoting their own party or complaining about the other party and so you didn't end up and Facebook, ordinary Facebook shows this as well you don't end up with a basis of information that you can actually work with Um, which is one of the reasons that we try to work with journalists and we try to get factual stuff and try to not what we do try to do is to get people locally to talk to our journalists and then try to get the journalists to verify. Now this comes up to the other problem, which is a problem everywhere in the world. We all vote. You know, I vote in elections. I'm going to write about elections. So you, part of the training is to say, okay, you have to be able to verify what you're saying. And so often it means that we don't know who started the violence often all we can say is there was violence sometimes okay if i mean there was there was some incidents where in gaza province for instance where campaign caravans of of the opposition were attacked by frilimo supporters we could get enough people who could verify that that we could say okay this is how it started But often you can't. Often all you can say is there was a violent incident. And we don't want to go any farther with our reporting than we can verify. Um, It's also important to cite sources in this so that, you know, if Frelimo is complaining that they were attacked by Renamo but we can't verify it, we can at least quote Frelimo and say Frelimo says that they were attacked by. And you quote the name of a spokesman. Um, polarization also of course in your journalists you do have a problem Um, we say to all of our correspondents that you cannot be working for a party so you can't be part and we did indeed have to dismiss several correspondents in in all the elections who we caught boasting to people oh I'm a fairly more representative but I'm filing for 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 the bulletin we hear about that, we throw them out. So, I mean, that does happen. 
But you're always trying to say to journalists, okay, as a journalist, you're trying to verify, you're trying to give us factual information. And that's what the editors in, the, in, in Maputo are trained to do, is they're starting to in, almost interview the journalists and say, okay, what did you actually see? Who did you talk to? So that gets you a bit over the polarization. Now, it doesn't mean this is a total problem. I mean, of our 150 correspondents, what do we get? We get good stuff for maybe 110, 120. Um, but still, it's this some sense of journalistic ethics, some sense of neutrality in this, even though you're supporting one side or the other. Um, so that's a kind of combination. What does the Election Commission think of us? Um, What's funny with all of this is all of these people privately think it's really useful. So the election commission press spokesman is always often complains about us, but you go out for coffee with him and you say, well, you know, I found out about the, the, the printer problems from your bulletin. Um, so we know, and we know they read it, of course. Um, so in the election, of course, they'll talk to us. Um, so that's a kind of thing. Other. So you, one of the things that is interesting, if you talk to the observer, the international observers, the Carter Center and the European Union, have a very specific brief that they are not allowed to talk to the press. And of course, they always talk to us because we've got more information than they do. And so we're trading information, but we're doing it confidentially. So, you know, we get a phone call. We meet, of course, regularly. You meet for coffee and you say, and they'll say to us, well, we heard there's a problem in Ilya de Mozambique. What do your correspondents say? And if we haven't heard anything, we send a text message to the Ilya and say, okay, what do you know? And we give them stuff, and we said, okay, in Gaza we've had some problems, so we tell your people to look at this. But of course it's informal. Um, officially, of course, they're not allowed to talk to us. Um, and of course then they're all on the email list. I mean, the entire EU monitoring delegation, we're all getting our newsletters. Um, anyway. Um, Two other things that came out of this, the ethics of publishing and, and access to data. This is really the same thing. Um, I think it is really important that you publish as much material as you can about elections, um, the good, the bad. Um, and I think it's important in particular because you're, you're looking ahead. I mean, we're trying to say to Ferlimo, particularly, why are you cheating? You know, look at the mess that you have created by cheating. It wasn't worth doing, and we can see you doing it. We're watching. And hopefully, in three years' time, when we get the next round of municipal elections, maybe they will be more conscious that we're watching. I don't know. Um, access to data, of course, access to data is important. Um, one of the things that really is important in Mozambique is we do get data down to the polling station level. But the other thing is media freedom. I mean, there are not many countries in Africa where, I w where we would be allowed to do this. 
Um, Zimbabwe, Namibia, we definitely wouldn't be allowed to do this. Um, and it does mean that our correspondents on the ground actually have to, don't get penalized for being our correspondents. And I think that is as important as the data, and it's putting the two of them together that becomes important, because what does the data mean? That's what Johnny was saying. Yes, you've got big data, but how do you use it? How do you think about it? What do you, what do, you do with it? And so your starting point, in a sense, is what have your correspondents said? What are the, what are the parties saying? What is the material that's coming out? Um, I think that's really important. And so, but the, the ethics of this are the more you can get out there, the better. The more that material that is out there that people can use. Because now that we've posted on, on the LSC website all the election data, Johan's done his set of number crunching, but anybody else can do their own set of number crunching and say, okay, what, you know, do I find something different? Do I, does it come up differently? The data is all there, and I think the more, if we get more of these sets, data sets out there, get more students to do this, get, get PhDs, I mean, it's a, you know, it's hard work using this data because it's not clean, it's not formatted correctly, it's all the rest of the problems, but, the way, you know, if we get enough different people doing this from enough different perspectives, then people would know. Museveni would know that people were watching. Other people would know. And this is, so it is important to get the data out there. But you need the media freedom also to have gotten the original reports of what's happening. Uh, thank you, Joe. Uh, Johan or Uni, would you like to respond? I just had a small comment mm -hmm. on, the, on the crowdsourcing question. Uh, one, one interesting field in this election forensics is more and more to use uh, GIS or Geographic Information mm -hmm. System techniques. And, and, and uh, hugely helpful in that is people would take the GPS coordinates of the actual ballot stations that would allow very, very accurate analysis of deviations within a certain geographic area. And, and, and that could be coordinated on, on a quite a simple basis of just locating where the actual ballot station is. Okay. Yeah. Can I have another comment? Um, a very brief comment. Okay. I, would say, I would say one other thing about crowdsourcing. The one thing that Mozambique does do is there is a national observer system in which they try to get national observers into almost every polling station. And those are, in a sense, organized through civil society, particularly through... Um, religious groups, the, the, the Catholics, the Protestants, and the, and the mosques, and they in turn use their people to try to get people into every polling station as, as observers. And that's a form of crowdsourcing because they're all sending in their reports, and not nearly enough is done in terms of the analysis to use that. But it does mean that an awful lot of people, 10,000 people, are actually observe, are actually watching what's going on. And that's an, not quite crowdsourcing, but it's an important way of mobilizing people to watch. Okay, I'm afraid we've run out of time, so uh, please join me in thanking our three speakers uh, for this evening.